Some time ago, there was a story in the Chicago Tribune about a man who was walking along when he decided to take a shortcut by crossing the tri-state freeway. And when he got to the middle of the freeway, his hat blew off. And so, as he turned back to retrieve his hat, he was struck by the oncoming traffic and killed him instantly. And here's the last sentence in this article in the Chicago Tribune. Let me read it to you. It is amazing how you can lose everything chasing nothing. It's amazing how you can lose everything chasing nothing. I wonder how many of us ever take time on a regular basis and ask ourselves the question, what are we chasing? What are we chasing in life? What is the price that we are paying for chasing what we're chasing in life? King Solomon, who was the richest man in the world, the most powerful man in the world, the wisest man in the world at his time, decided that he wanted to chase after a whole lot of things, hoping that at least one of them will bring him satisfaction, that would bring him contentment, that would bring him peace of mind that he was desperately looking for, that would bring him enjoyment in life. So he chased after science and the natural law. He chased after philosophy and psychology. He chased after sensuality and pleasures. He chased after materialism and wealth. He chased after beautiful architecture and gardens and the ascetics. He chased after hedonism and self-indulgence. He chased after egoism or living for self. He was chasing after dead rituals of religion. But none of them, none of them could bring him that peace of mind. None of these brought him the desired contentment that he was desperate for. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and 8, as we continue in this series of messages, what is like down under, under the sun. He found out that chasing after all of these things did not help him one bit. But then he discovered there was one thing that got close. Not perfect, but close. Did not answer all of the questions of life, but it got close. Did not explain all of the mysteries of life, but it got close. What was it? Wisdom. In fact, there are six words in the Hebrew language. All of them are translated into English as wisdom. (laughs) But the word that is used here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 14 times is the Hebrew word chukma. What does it chukma means? It means to make the right choice or the right choices at the right times. It means to have an understanding, to have discernment, in the difficult situations of life. It means not to be easily persuaded or deceived or allured by falsehoods and by imitations. This is the kind of wisdom that the Apostle James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, tells us about in his epistle, that when you need it and then call upon God, that He will give it to you, not may give it to you, or possibly give it to you, but He will give it to you in abundance. 
And Solomon, who was asked by God, what do you want? What do you want in life? And Solomon, above all and everything else, he didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for wealth, although God gave him all of that in addition. But he asked only for wisdom, because he knew that is the secret for joy in life. And yet, when God gave him wisdom and gave him wealth on top of that, he tried to live part of his life under the sun, trying to experience what it is like to live without God, and then he ended up with all these discoveries. But he came into the ultimate discovery about wisdom, and he gives us in this chapter, chapter 7, at least three positive contributions that godly wisdom will give every one of us who ask God for it. Three. One, he said, wisdom will do you a world of good, verses 1 to 10. Secondly, he says, wisdom will give you clarity of vision for your life, verses 11 to 18. And then, thirdly, he says, wisdom will give you power for living this life, verses 19 to 29. He says, wisdom will do your world of good. And look at the first two verses, okay, of chapter 7. And if you read them, if you've ever read them when you were alone, you must have come to the conclusion there's something wrong with your Bible. What's wrong with this guy? When he tells you that sorrow is better than laughter, what's wrong with that? When he says death is better than life, that the day you die, better than the day you're born. What's wrong with this guy? Is he for real? Is he so depressed that he can't see straight? (laughs) Is he contradicting what he said in his other book, the book of Proverbs, when he said laughter can be a medicine that heals a broken heart? What's wrong with this picture? That the day you die better than the day you live. Most of us, listen, I mean, I don't know about you, but hands down, if I'm going to have a choice between a birthday party and a funeral, I want to go to the birthday party. (laughs) So he says, he says, you know, the day you die better. Now, wait a minute. What is he saying? If you react that way when you read those words at face value, if you reacted that way, you're fine. It's okay. Don't feel guilty about it because I'm going to explain it to you. (laughs) And the problem is the English language. (laughs) It's not the problem with Solomon, but it's the problem with the English language. Translation from Semitic languages, particularly parables and some of the Psalms, are very, very difficult. They're extremely difficult at times. Not that the translation in your Bible is wrong. as in, man, I'm going to change this translation for another translation. Your translation is not wrong, but the problem is with the rhyming. Parables and those proverbs, most of their meaning is in the rhyming of the words. And so, to correct this misunderstanding that comes across from the English text, you have to start with the first half of verse 1 of chapter 7, when he says, a man's or a person's reputation is far more valuable than the most expensive of perfume, and perfume was very expensive back then. I'm going to explain to you in a minute. When he says that your reputation, your name, is far more precious than the perfume that will evaporate. That is a foundational verse. Mark it in your Bible. Underline it in your Bible. But he said, how can death be better than birth? Listen carefully. Because in the original language, those two words rhyme together. Here's what Solomon is saying. Solomon 
is not contrasting death and life. He is not contrasting birth and death. He's not even concluding that to die is better than to be born. He's not saying that at all. He is contrasting the two most significant days of anyone's life, the two most significant days in the human experience, in the day you're born and the day you die. That's what he's comparing, the two days, not the two events. He said, these are most significant days in any human experience, in your experience and in mine. The day when the birth is announced in the newspaper and the day when it's in the obituary column in the newspaper. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that a life that is lived between those two significant days will determine whether that name leaves behind a lovely fragrance or a foul stench. He is saying that the life that is lived between those two significant days in the life of everyone is going to determine whether you're going to leave behind a positive and uplifting example or a sense of horror. Whether that name that is lived between those two days is going to leave, whenever it's mentioned, is going to bring about some thoughts of honor or dishonor. Well, think about this. If you get two names mentioned in contrast, like Eisenhower and Hitler, I mean, what's your reaction? Now, I'm not saying Eisenhower is perfect. Nobody is. But when you think of the name, you think of all kinds of positive things, beautiful smelling fragrant of a life that is lived, dedicated, and committed to the service of the country. And the other one communicates horror. Or Martin Luther King, when you compare that with the name Saddam Hussein, what do you get? One that has lived positively and tried to impact life positively, and the other one, horror. And that's what he means here. That's what Solomon is saying, that when a person dies with a good name, that name will always evoke pleasant thoughts, positive reaction, goodwill feelings. And in that sense, the day of one's death is greater than the day of one's birth. I mean, think about this. (laughs) When a baby is born, I mean, his or her significance is mostly to the parents. As a grandfather, of course, it's to the grandparents. That's a big day. My immediate family. But that's about it. doesn't matter who that person is, whatever they grow up to be. Ah, but after that person has lived a positive life, after that person lived a life that has impacted the kingdom of God and the work of God and the ministry of God, after that person lived a life of sacrificial giving, a life of giving of self, a life of honoring God, after that person lived that life, when that person dies, after that wonderful life, his or her name bring a smile on people's faces. Did you get it? In the same sense, he said, the day of one's death is far more significant, is far more important than the day of one's birth, because there are very few people heard of unless you're a royal family or something. But never people heard of you when you were born. But then when you lived your life, ah, a lot of people have come across 
You path at work, in your neighborhood, everywhere you go, leaving fragrance, leaving beautiful smelling fragrance in your wake. And that is why that day of death is very significant. The memory of the just, said Proverbs 10.7, is blessed. Oh, but the name of the wicked were rot. You know, when Mary of Bethany poured that very expensive perfume, and it's probably a laborer's wages for a year, that's a very expensive perfume. And when she poured it at the feet of Jesus and anointed His feet with that expensive perfume, here's what Jesus said. He said, her name will be honored for all generations to come, and it is. But the very man who complained about the waste and how expensive it was and shouldn't be done this way, we should have sold it and made some money, give away to the poor, the very man who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver died in dishonor and in shame. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of His who? Saints. I want you to hear me right, please, because this is important. Solomon is not telling us to be preoccupied with death. He's not telling us to be obsessed about death. He's not telling us to be careless about death. He's not telling us to be unrealistic about death. But rather, here's what he's saying in those few verses, the first ten verses. He's saying, be realistic about death. He's saying, learn to number your days. He is saying, learn to live this life with eternity in mind. He said, look upon the rebuke of the constructive criticism that comes from a righteous, from a godly person as an opportunity, not for you to lash out against them, but that as a good medicine that will be of greater value than the flattering words of a foolish person. Don't go for the shortcuts in life. Don't go for the shortcuts because most likely you'll be lost. In fact, most likely you will lose everything. But when things get difficult, don't just long for the good old days. That's what he's saying. And I got to add to this. You know those always longing for the good old days. <laughs> I always think of the good old days as basically a combination of bad memory and good imagination. <laughs> Long ago, I saw a bumper sticker that really influenced my thinking. It says, I am joyful because tomorrow I might be in heaven. And today, if you, if you know me well, when you come and ask me, how are you? I never tell you I'm fine, I'm doing great, because I could be lying. Depending on whether I'm feeling fine or I'm not, I'm going to say fine, and I'm not going to lie. So if you ask me, how are you? And my standard answer, as many of you know, I'm rejoicing. Now, I love it when a non-believer then asks me, why? I said, oh, because tomorrow I might be in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that really blows them away. <laughs> they can't figure this one out. Are you kidding? <laughs> but I'm so glad you asked. Wisdom will do your world of good. Secondly, wisdom will give you clarity of vision. Look at verses 10, 11 to 18. When you have godly wisdom, you will see things from an eternal perspective, not from this tiny little short life perspective, but from an eternal perspective. 
And when you see things from the eternal perspective, you're going to accept the challenges of life. You're going to be able to deal with the unexpected turns in life. You will be able to overcome the obstacles that you face in life, and you're going to turn them from obstacle to stepping stones. And Solomon said that when you face challenging situations in life, wisdom will be far more precious to you than a very rich inheritance. You say, what? Everybody's looking for a rich inheritance. Everybody's looking for a rich uncle. But listen, he said, why? why is he saying that? Ah, because money loses its value. Money can be lost. But godly wisdom, listen carefully, please. Godly wisdom keeps its value. Godly wisdom will never be lost. The person who has godly wisdom will be able to create wealth. The person who has godly wisdom will be able to use wealth wisely. The person who has godly wisdom will be able to bless others with wealth. But a foolish person with a billion dollars can blow it away in a few days. I was reading some statistics just this week about the vast percentage of those who won these multi-million dollar lotteries, and vast number of them go through these millions of dollars in a very short period of time, and some of them actually end up homeless. Why? Foolishness, lack of godly wisdom, he said, is far better than a rich inheritance, because wisdom gives you perspective in life. It gives you perspective on life. Wisdom, godly wisdom, will give you a vision for your life. Godly wisdom will give you a purpose for life. Godly wisdom will give you clarity of vision in your life. You know, through the years, I have been privileged to know some godly people, godly men particularly. And it's been my greatest privilege to know these men of godly wisdom, and learn from them. I saw them when they faced adversity, and I saw them when they were in prosperity. And I've seen them in both situations. But because of godly wisdom that God has given them, that they sought from the hand of God, that godly wisdom gave them clarity of vision, whether it be in adversity or in prosperity. They never change or vary one way or another. They stay faithful to God and with God, even when they lost everything. They neither become arrogant in the times of prosperity, nor they become bitter in the times of adversity. When you have godly wisdom, you will have balance in life. You will have balance in life. You don't tip the scales of your life one way or the other. And when you have godly wisdom, you're going to walk by faith, both in the familiar roads of life and the unfamiliar ones. Uh, You will be faithful to God in all the circumstances, whether the ones that make sense to you or the ones that don't make sense. And we all face those. When you have godly wisdom, you will not fret when you see the wicked prospering. As the Psalm 73 shows us clearly how many of God's people through generations fret 
They were fretting when they saw the wicked prospering and the godly suffering. But you will not fret. Do you know why? Because you know the answer to Jesus' question, what profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? When you have godly wisdom, look at verse 16. Verse 16, when you have godly wisdom, you will not fall in the traps of self-righteousness or legalism or dead religious rituals. Why? Because you're walking in the righteousness that comes from fearing the Lord. To fear God is to know how to live in this world without self-righteousness and complacency on the one hand, nor ingratitude to God for all of His blessings that He has given you on the other. The problem with most of us when we face tough times, when we face difficult circumstances, when we face puzzlements in life, we tend to forget all of the blessings that God has given us, and all our focus is on one thing. But all begin to think of all the blessings that God has given you in your life. And you'll be overwhelmed. It's like the song we learned in Sunday school. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Ah, you'll be amazed to find out what the Lord has done. You don't have to have a seminary degree to realize that ingratitude does not bless the heart of God. Let me confess to you, the one thing that keeps me on my face before God on a regular basis is this thought, that God accepted me. People running around saying, accept Jesus, please take Jesus in, you know, like a little beggar who's begging to get into your life. (laughs) Listen, you better get on your face and knees and thank God that He accepted you, that He loves you that He's inviting you, that He wants to fellowship with you. And that is the thing that keeps me on my face, that He accepted me, that He changed me, that He forgave me, that He restored me, that He stands by me every single day. Wisdom. Amen. Give God praise. Wisdom will do your world of good. Solomon said, secondly, wisdom will give you clarity of vision. And thirdly, he says, wisdom will give you power for living. Look at verse 19. He says, wisdom makes the wise more powerful than ten rulers of a city. (laughs) Look, I know people are forever looking for power in their life. It's in the media all the time. Take control of things, you know. I mean, it's in the titles of books. You go in the bookstore, say, take control of things, you know. Take control over your stress. Right. Now, how do you do that? I mean, give me a break. Ah, take control of your schedule. Take control of your tongue. Take control of your temper. Take control of spending. Take control of this and take control of that. Every is a take control. Right. It's easy said than done. Listen to me. Only when we daily walk in the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of wisdom, only when we walk with Jesus under His control and under His Lordship, only then can we be able to take control of anything. You look around and you say, the world is out of control. 
The world, look at the earthquakes are killing tens of thousands of people. Look at the cyclones are killing tens of thousands. Look at the natural disasters that are affecting millions of people around the world. Look at the raging wars around the world. The last time I checked, 31 different hotspots in the world. Wars are going on. And easy to conclude that things are out of control. Oh, yeah, they may be out of your control, out of my control, but they're never out of God's control. He is in control, and He is in charge whether we acknowledge Him or not. And only godly wisdom is able to give us the confidence to know that God is in control no matter what happens. Only godly wisdom will be able to give us the power to control the ship of our lives. Only God's power can control things in our lives. In fact, it is godly wisdom that gives us that confidence, even when we don't have all of the answers, even when we don't have all of the answers to all of life's difficulties and problems and all the questions of life. We are at perfect peace because of godly wisdom. Because we do have some answers. Ah, but if we have all of the answers about all of life's questions, there would be no need for us to look forward to heaven, right? Why would you look forward to heaven? Where we have a new glorified bodies. Where we're going to reign and rule with Christ. Where we're going to be like Jesus after the resurrection. Why would you look forward to That's why all these New Age people, all these motivational preachers and, and motivational teachers and, and motivational speakers, they're going around saying, this is life is all there is. <laughs> but the truth is, listen to me, in this world, you're not going to live for very long without realizing that you're going to face sin, that you're going to face temptations, that you're going to face the devil, that you will be facing manipulation by others, that you'll be facing seduction and deception on the part of others, that you'll face all of that in life. Ah, oh, but here's what godly wisdom does. It's not that we're not going to face these things, but godly wisdom is going to give you power to discern the traps of Satan. It's going to give you power to overcome temptations. It's going to give you power to defeat Satan. It's going to give you power to avoid entrapments of this world. It's going to give you power to save you from allurements of this world. It's going to give you power to walk in His righteousness alone. Let me illustrate to you my true life story what I believe Solomon is trying to tell us in chapter 7 and 8. Many years ago, there was a young man who applied for a job as a pilot of a steamboat up and down the Mississippi River. And a man who was conducting the interview was convinced in his mind that this young man cannot do the job. And so he asked him the question. Young man, he said, do you know where the rocks are in the river? And the young man scratched his head for a moment, and he said, No, sir, I don't know where all the rocks are in the river. And sort of the interviewer kind of feeling justified in his own mind, but before he could even finish his thought, the young man continued. He said, Oh, but sir, I know where all the rocks ain't. <laughs> I know where all the rocks ain't. I may not know where they are, but I don't know where they are not. And he got the job. 
Beloved, listen to me. Solomon is saying that godly wisdom may not show you where all the rocks in life are, but they're going to show you where they ain't, which will show you how to navigate life with joy and peace and contentment. But the question, I think, on the mind of some, how do you get godly wisdom? How do you get that godly wisdom? And I'm glad you asked. When the Holy Spirit of God comes in to indwell you, and then on a daily basis being filled of the Spirit of God. That, see, the Holy Spirit has many names, and being called the Spirit of Wisdom is foremost among them. He is called the Comforter. He's called the Spirit of Wisdom. And the problem with so many people who are running around not experiencing godly wisdom is because they have grieved the Holy Spirit. They have quenched the Holy Spirit in their life, and they're wondering why they don't have godly wisdom. Only when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of wisdom dwells in you, and then daily be filled with that same Spirit. You say, well, how the Holy Spirit dwells in me? For those of you who have never declared Jesus to be the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul, that's where you need to begin. Because the Spirit of wisdom cannot come and dwell in you until Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. Until you begin to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you will not understand and you will not experience living daily with the Spirit of wisdom. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org. Org.